0: All right, recording in progress welcome to the top m&a entrepreneurs podcast my name is john stoddard i got a guest today is mike Jamison. mike and i met a couple months ago through search funder uh, mike just bought a company uh personal touch landscaping so uh welcome mike to the show
1: hi john thanks for having me
0: yeah so tell tell me you know you and i met on search funder. you had some uh financial excel spreadsheets to do some modeling and uh Tell me about, you, got, you just bought the business, personal touch. Tell me landscaping. Tell me a lot about that.
1: Um, Yeah. So, you know, about the business itself, um, I had been looking for businesses a little bit larger. Um, but my wife came across this one, which was in her hometown. And it seemed like the owners were trying to put in place some of the things that um, will lead to businesses being bigger. There's there's kind of like a gulf between, you know, small businesses and, um, you know, which are under 500,000 EBITDA. And then those that start to get above a million dollars of EBITDA. And that basically means the difference between a mom and pop company, where if you take out mom and pop, you don't really have a company and companies that have some layer of professional management. So that if you were to take out mom and pop and replace them with a searcher or a new CEO, things continue to run pretty well. And so even though this business was significantly smaller than my uh, target, it seemed like they were doing some of the things that would be necessary to get to that next level. So that interested me. Um, I ran the numbers, realized that it could work out. um, And and then once my wife and I had the initial conversation with the sellers, we decided that we felt comfortable with, with buying a business that was a little bit smaller and in this case, a lot smaller than we had been aiming for. And um, that, you know, as, as long as our assumptions were correct um, as we did our diligence, that we would be, that we would be good with this. So, so we decided to move forward with it. And then we, we closed at the very end of May. Um, and my first day on the job was the the first day of June after Memorial day.
0: Yeah. Let, let's uh, rewind a little bit, a little about Mike. He is an air been in the air force. And then you went to Harvard business school and now an entrepreneur just bought, bought a business. So t- how did you go from Harvard? to just say, I don't want to work for a fortune 500 company. I want to own my own business. I mean,
1: I, I, I'm curious to learn about that
0: process, the decision-making.
1: Yeah, it was, um, it was actually really straightforward. I, I was a pilot in the air force. Um, had decided that it was time to, to separate and settle down, um, decided that business school was the right route for, for me, um, got to business school, knew that I didn't want to go do investment banking or consulting, like the majority of the graduates go do, um, and I was at a Veterans Club event, and one of one of my uh, fellow classmates was like, hey, Mike, you should do search. You'd be a great searcher. I'm like, what the heck is that? Uh, they, he told me about it, and I was like, that sounds amazing, because that's exactly what I want to do. Um, as I had been doing interviews for internships, the internships were all aimed at 27-somethings. Um, you know, super top tier talent, but young and experienced, couldn't lead their way out of a paper bag. Um, and most of them were very regimented. It'll be it'll be five years, seven years before you're a general manager of, before you're in charge of anything. And I just didn't like that. Uh, once I found out about search, I'm like, wait, you can just go buy a company. Uh, I didn't realize you could do that. Okay. Um, so. As I looked into it more I decided I wanted to do it, I confirmed my hypothesis that I didn't want to work for a fortune 500 company by. um, Working for Danaher for the summer in between my first and second year Um, it's a great company I super respect them and. I learned a lot of really useful things um, about change and improvement that I will continue to use forever, but I, I realized that if I wanted to be in a bureaucracy, I was better off in the air force.
0: Um, <laughs> I've been there. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. And, and so then I dedicated my second year to taking the classes that I would need in order to, to round myself out. I took uh, the private equity modeling class, the CFO class, um, basically anything that had to do with numbers that seemed relevant to buying a business um, to the point that I could close my eyes and do a 10-year private equity model Leverage buyout model right now, and and by the time I actually you know started my search, I was extremely comfortable with that, and that's I think you mentioned how we met is I had posted a couple of like you know blank models on on search funder or had mentioned it, and and uh, that's just how we kind of started talking.
0: Yeah, and I, the, the last time we talked, there was I want to key on something that you mentioned. And I went out and bought it. It was that book, uh, the HBR Guide to Buying a Small Business. Think big, buy small. Uh, it's like the granddaddy of all business buying books.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was that was our textbook for the entrepreneurship through acquisition class taught by um, we called them Rick and Royce. So Rick for Richard and Royce. And um, if you notice. If you've heard of the private equity firm ABRI, the RY in ABRI is Royce Yudkoff. He's one of the co founders of ABRI.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, this is all like, you know, I was doing the MA stuff before that. And then I I didn't even know about a lot about the search funder stuff that you can get funded to search for
1: businesses. Absolutely. Uh,
0: And, but the model came from this guy, Royce, because I mean, tell me this story again, because he was, looking for deal sourcing and it wasn't working. So he changed it to the search funder business model.
1: Uh, yeah, so basically the, the story of the search fund goes back to the early 80s um, when private equity was in its Wolf of Wall Street days kind of stuff. Um, and so private equity was this new amazing thing. There were a few people, um, there was a specific Stanford professor, I forget his name, realized that the same model could work with um, top tier and top tier at that point meant Harvard and Stanford only um, graduates, um, MBA graduates. So he basically said to a couple of his, you know, outstanding students, hey, look, I'll give you the money that you need to search for two years, right? You'll basically become a one person private equity firm, you'll look for a small business to buy, Um, recurring revenue, stable customers, all the kinds of things that, that are now baked in like that it's the traditional model. And then that gives me first crack at, um, you know, whatever business you buy. And there are some amazing stories. Um, Iron Mountain was a search fund.
0: Yeah. Uh, that Document storage, right?
1: Yep, absolutely. It was, you know, guy bought a small little location in upstate New York, um, named Iron Mountain, and grew it into a many, many billions of dollar, you know, worldwide business. Um, The cell phone uh, insurance company, you know, they say, "Hey, do you want insurance with that purchase?" Um, That was a search fund.
0: Yes, get it for nine months. Anyway, that's off the subject. But get it at least for nine months.
1: Yeah. And so um, those were it, the model. The model worked. Basically, it, it proved that with with um, smart investors and a smart CEO, you could buy a small company and grow it. So the, the difference, though, um, that's so that's the traditional or funded search uh, story. Uh, Rick and Royce basically realized that there was room in the market for something slightly different because the the traditional search fund will get conventional debt. So Rick and Royce realized that if you, as a student purchased a smaller business that was within the SBA rules and kept your investors below the 20% minimum or the 20% maximum, sorry, um, then you could effectively own 80 to 100% of your business you just have to have a smaller business um, and instead of flipping it and selling it after five to seven years or growing it into a public company, um, you can just continue to grow it. Um, and the economics work out quite similarly for the searcher. Um, and they actually work pretty well for the investors. Um, the IRRs are similar. The mo uh, the multiples on invested capital are similar. Uh, it's just that it's a smaller business, you have a little bit less of a safety net in the form of a board and investors, but you also can't be fired by your board who are actually the owners of the company. And so um, it's a different take, we call it the self-funded model. Um, yeah. And, and they, they effectively invented that and have been teaching that for about 20 years at Harvard. And so then some people will say you have the Stanford model, which is the traditional or funded model And then you have the Harvard model, which is the self-funded model. Um, And both of them work quite well um, just for different people with different personalities. Yeah. Now, what did
0: you do? Did did the search model or the self-funded model?
1: So I I, I had decided to do a traditional funded search. I had lined up my 15 investors. I was ready to write my PPM. And then the CFO of Jackson Hewitt came by campus. Um, fishing for new franchisees. And long story short, I kept stiff arming my investors saying, I'll write my PPM next month. Okay, I'll write it next month. And by the summer after I graduated, had signed an LOI with Jackson Hewitt um, to purchase 11 full markets or about 360 units stores um, of of their tax business. I would have been the largest franchisee by double on day one. And COVID kind of um, killed that because the CARES Act meant that all of the banks that did SBA loans were just completely swamped with CARES Act stuff. And the timing of the tax season meant that we just had to close by middle of October or I wouldn't be ready for tax season. Well, end of September rolls around. We've been working on this deal for three months. We're hoping to close soon. And then both of my bankers, who are ready and willing and want to do the deal, say, "Got it. We can close you by end of November, mid December, latest." So that deal just blow up in my face. Wow. Um, I said to my wife, "Okay, that's fine. I'll just call up my investors and they'll they'll give me the six seven hundred thousand dollars that we need to last for two two and a half years uh, in this market as a searcher, and and then we'll be good." And she said, "Well." let's just see what we find on like biz by cell and trans world and other stuff. And we did that for a couple of weeks, found enough stuff to be interested. Yeah. Kept me busy for about a month. And when that stuff, when I, when I finished tracking through all those dead ends, I was like, okay, I'm going to go now. And she's like, no, just try it another two weeks. And so we just kind of rolled that Uh, by the end of November, almost had an LOI with, a Christmas light company up in Steamboat in Colorado Spring or in, in Colorado. Then um, got, got beat out by a strategic with an all-cash offer. Um, ended up signing an LOI with a software company in New York City. Um, worked on that deal for three and a half, four months when that one finally fell through. Um, why why did that fall through? That one fell through because the business was too good and the banks couldn't understand it um (laughs) yeah so the business was doing 1.2 million of EBITDA off of 1.6 million in revenue oh my god really two founders two employees and they wanted to sell it for how much six
0: million that's still a deal it sounds like to me
1: that is a steal of a deal the problem was is that The founders had in twenty seventeen founded the company, made no money. Twenty eighteen made three four hundred thousand of profit. Twenty nineteen no, I'm I'm off by a year. Um, So in twenty twenty they made one point two million. So trailing twelve months was one point two million. The the twelve months before that was three hundred thousand. The twelve months before that was five hundred thousand. Yeah. So. First year, they made no money. Second year, they made a a pretty good amount. Third year, they took a year off the business and left their two employees hanging by themselves. No supervision, just left them alone for two years. Started another company. Actually, they purchased another company. Tried running that for a year, realized that their first business was better. Came back to it with even the slightest bit of attention grew from 300,000 of profit to 1.2 million.
0: Yeah.
1: And it made
0: just not enough history to it.
1: Yep. the And so the banks just didn't understand it. I got a hundred different stories about why they didn't like it. You know, the worst one was you we think you're overpaying. Um, and that made me know that they had no idea what they were doing. Um, that's
0: a, yeah. That's a six X multiple for a software company. That's not unheard of.
1: Yeah. It's well, it's four X. Four X. Four X on the profit. And it was, and I only need I had 2 million of, um, Capital that was coming in of equity. I only needed two and a half million from the bank, and I had a two million dollar seller note. Um, you know that those numbers are slightly off, but it was it was right about there. And um, the bank said you're just you're paying too much. So when we finally ran out of the end of our exclusivity period, the owner shopped it around. Within two weeks, was under contract, seven million dollars, all cash, no strings. Holy crap! Yeah. What kind of, what kind of software were they doing? Um, I don't want to get too much in detail, but what they did was help fulfilled by Amazon sellers. So for example, uh,
0: not, not an old, uh, you know, dinosaur industry, but a growing industry.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, yep.
0: So, Hey, I got to ask you about the, uh, the the investors you had now were these people that you knew from harvard
1: that some yes but the typical funded search fund investor is very sophisticated um exacts very clear terms from the searcher you know if you make these hurdles, you'll get this much carry. If you make these hurdles, you'll get that much carry, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're generally sophisticated. And if they're not doing it professionally, they did something um, like private equity um, or hedge funds or something. And so they're, they, they're very aware of the market.
0: Yeah, um, not the first rodeo.
1: Exactly. Now, if you compare that to the average Self funded investor, the average self funded investor looks a lot more like a well to do business person, but not with many multiples of millions of dollars, um, or a doctor, or lawyer, or banker. If, for example, you wanted to invest in alternates or private equity, you need to have at least a million dollars to be a limited partner. And the rule of thumb is you only wanna have 10% of your net worth or your investable assets in in alternates. And so then you have to have at least $10 million to your name before you're gonna be able to play in private equity. And that's just to be the bottom end of the smallest fund. Mm -hmm. With a self-funded investor, maybe you've got two to $4 million, which means you have, you know, two to $400,000 that you can invest. And so then what you'll do is you'll write a a check of 25 to 100,000 typically um, to a searcher. And so then a searcher, someone like me who, um, but if I was buying a bigger business, I would have needed this, but I actually was able to fund the the 5% from my own personal savings. Uh, But if I was buying a business for $4 million, right? And I need a million, I don't have a million dollars. So I'm gonna put in my 50 to 100,000 so the banker is happy with me that I've got skin in the game. And then my uh, my investors are gonna make up the rest. So I'm gonna get 10 people to chip in $100,000. And the way the model works is I will give them a small uh, prep. So I have to give them their money back before I make anything other than my salary. Um, I'm gonna give them a small coupon you know, in the range of four to six, maybe 8%, depending on how risky it is. Um, And then I will offer them say, you know, 15, well, 10, really market is closer to 10 right now, 10 to 20, 25% of the common equity of the company um, after they've gotten their preferred return back. And that's called the equity step up. And what that effectively means is that if you do well, Um, and just pay your loan off, you'll be able to pay back your equity investors, generally in the three to five year range, making two to three times their money, two to five times really. Um, And that's a a tidy little IRR, much better than the stock market. And that's, riskless isn't the right term, but it is much lower in risk because it's based off of paying off the loan. If the searcher is able to pay off the loan and grow the company a little bit, then that equity portion starts to mean a little bit more, and you know these folks can get closer to 10x returns. Um, you know, so that means you would have chipped in a hundred thousand dollars, and if I, you know, to buy a five million dollar company, and if I grow the company to twenty million dollar company, but I've paid off all the debt, you know, my one million has gone to well, you don't even have to do that. If you buy a $5 million company. It's a million dollars. Yeah. Well, if you buy a $5 million company with $1 million of equity, right? And then you pay off the debt and grow it to a $10 million company. Then the $1 million of equity has multiplied by 10, right? Yeah. Now, as the searcher, I'm going to take 75% of, of the common equity after I've paid you guys back your $1 million. Um, but say I grow the company to $20 million, which isn't unreasonable, that's only four times, then you as an investor might get, you know, seven, eight, nine times the money you put in. Um, And so it's a it's a nice little model. I mean, and and kudos to Rick and Royce for for coming up with it as a variation on the the funded search. I get to keep the ownership and control of the company. Um, It allows people who are a little bit too small to play in private equity to to have some alternates and do private markets. Um, And all around, it works quite well. Yeah. How many?
0: How many? uh, If an investor says, uh, you know, they're not just going to put it into one entrepreneur. Usually, how many they do they invest in to spread their risk?
1: So, there are a good number of investors who have started to do it semi-professionally. Yeah. Invest in search funds. They will try or in self-funded searches right they will they seem to fund five to ten you know a small enough number that they can keep track of it um but i would say the average investor gets presented with this opportunity once in their lifetime
0: oh wow oh
1: because you're you're a doctor lawyer have three four million bucks you know somebody is buying um a business in your community and they say to the seller, hey, I need some equity investors. Is there anyone that you'd like to refer me to, right? Otherwise I'll go drum up my own. Um, And for most upper middle class folks in the United States, they don't have opportunities like this more than once ever, if ever.
0: And then turn around $100,000 into a million or 10X in a company? No,
1: no. And just, you know, just to be clear, the 10X, that's not typical. Typical is more like your 100,000 becomes two to 300. Right, right. Well, but, to, but you know, two to three X return within three to four years, where else are you going to find that?
0: You don't. You don't find it in an index fund. No, that's going to take a lot longer. What do you, what do you think about, I'm just curious your opinion about the, uh, you know, being uh, uh, funded by a search funder because... I ran into another guy reached out to me on search funder and he said, Hey, I got a ton of deal flow deals. I just haven't found anything I want. I go, well, how many do you have? And he said, a thousand. I said, what do you mean? You went through a a thousand businesses. And and he told me, he goes, well, and I got 300,000. If I don't find a business in the next month, I'm going to lose it because his term, whatever it was came to an end. It sounds like he was doing, I mean, it's just specific to him, but it sounds like he was doing, too particular about what business he was looking for.
1: I actually think that <clears throat> that sounds about right. I would say that in the year that I searched, I looked at forty thousand businesses. Holy crap, forty thousand! There you go. And and the thing is, is that the average amount of time that I spent on those was five seconds or less. Yeah. So if you take biz by sell. Um, which is what I would do. I would run out of leads. Um, I would give the internet a couple of weeks to, to backfill stuff that I hadn't looked at yet. But I would take everything new in the last two or three weeks, which is in the entire country, which is maybe 10,000, right? Maybe maybe not quite that, maybe 7,000. But I would, I would filter out anything over 20 million asking price. I can't afford that as a self-funded searcher filter out anything below five six hundred thousand of EBITDA because it's not going to be able to afford the, the business won't be able to pay me a salary that I can live off of with four kids and pay back my student loans and pay off the loan. So those were effectively my, my minimums and then what I would do is I would say I need a business that's asking prices less than 5x. I need a business where the margins are twenty percent or better. Um, I need a business that's non-cyclical. So I would eliminate things like um, construction or things that I don't understand, manufacturing, things I I don't, don't want to be in restaurants, um, and and then if it met those three hurdles or those three filters, which is very few, you know. So out of seven thousand, you know, I'm spending a few seconds like you know, single digit seconds on each on each listing on biz Buy sell, finding the ones that meet those three um, filters. If it does, then what I do is I open up my model um, and I will plug in the purchase, the asking price, the um, EBITDA, and an estimate for working capital, um, FF&E, CapEx, that kind of stuff, just based off of the industry and this by cell will usually say that um, and I plug it in and out of 100 so say say there's a 1000 that I've looked at there's 100 that meet the first five or those first three filters. Of those hundred. 50 to 80 will will not make it through my first hack model, the point of the first hack model is to get to know quickly so. This won't make enough money for me after ten years, right? If I'm going to do this for ten years and come out with one point two million dollars, I would have better been better off being a consultant, right? I should have just done that. Um, is it going to work for my investors? Like, am I going to be able to pay them off within five years um, under reasonable conditions? Are they going to get, you know, twenty-five or greater IRR? And then, does it work for banks? Like, is my debt service coverage ratio above one point two five? better if it's above 1.5. So by the time I impose those three constraints, is it good for me, investors, if any, and the bank, um, that eliminates 50 to 80 out of the 100, which were out of the 7,000. So now I'm down to 20 to 30 maybe that I send emails to the brokers um, requesting a SIM. Now on those Most regional, like local and regional brokers don't have a lock on good stuff. They stumble upon it once in a while. They know it's good. And there are people waiting in the wings telling those brokers, hey, if you see something that looks like this, that meets these criteria, tell me right away. So of the 20 or 30 emails I would send, things that meet all my criteria, the basic criteria to look at the SIM, half of them at least are already under contract by the time I even see it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The other half, I get the SIM. I open up. So now out of 7,000, I'm opening seven to 10 SIMs. Well, two thirds of those I reject immediately.
0: Yeah.
1: Because it's crap. Uh, one of the things I saw was 1.2 million of EBITDA asking, 3X, open up the SIM, it's a million dollars of ad-backs. The, the guy was putting every single personal expense he had through the business. And I was like, look, that's, you know, that's his choice, but if he'll lie to the IRS that bad, he'll lie to me. So...
0: I, I, yeah, I like that rule.
1: I don't even I don't even want to know. Like, okay, it's a million dollars of EBITDA and there's 100, 150,000 of ad-backs. That's totally reasonable. Those are justifiable business expenses. I got a fancy four hundred one k and healthcare plan. Okay, got it. I don't have to have that stuff. That counts. But you know, three family members on payroll. No, I don't. I don't buy it. Yeah. So then I end up with out of seven thousand things that I've gone through, and this is like in three days. I end up with a small handful. You know, two to ten that. Are actually still for sale, and I'm actually interested in. So then I'll schedule a broker call. Um, then that almost always goes well, as long as the broker doesn't say like, "Oh, actually, I think they're lying." They usually say they don't think they are. Talk to the owner, <laughs> and and then you know my conversion from owner conversation to um, IOI submitted or just like a hey. I think that your company might be worth this much. Let me know if I'm in the right ballpark and if it's worth continuing the conversation. It was almost 100%. I would submit an offer almost every time I spoke to an owner, um, except for a few owners that didn't have brokers to compile a SIM. And so I spoke with them and I'm like, oh, whoa, no way. This is not the right business for me as soon as I found out the basics.
0: Yeah. Well, how how much uh, did you do any direct? Um, to mailings
1: to or reach out to directly to business the same time with it's brokers you know all of my buddies are and I think that that's a very important and valid way to do things for most searchers whether it be funded or self-funded however I didn't because I was just busy enough that I didn't need that
0: You know, you weren't looking for any specific industry that, Hey, I love working in the landscape industry. You just looked for whatever matched your financial criteria.
1: Exactly. Exactly. My, my general leadership skills in the air force um, were not going to make the SBA happy about any industry. Um, And so there was no reason to focus on an industry. I mean, yeah, it's just that they're agnostic. As long as, long as the numbers look right, Exactly. do Yep, exactly. As long as, and, and the thing is, is that, I mean, I, I, the you can have a good recurring revenue, high margin B2B business in any industry, right? Um, you know, you find that a lot in software, but it's in other stuff too. This, this business, this landscaping business that I'm in um, it's B2C. Most all of our customers are residential, but the majority of them are on automatically renewing one year contracts. Yeah. This is beautiful. So where did you find this one? This was on BizBuy or? Um, I don't remember which website, my, my intern slash wife, I used to joke that she's my intern. Um, you know, we we would both cruise the websites. I don't remember which one she found it on, but she sent it over to me. Might've been biz by sell or, or touched on or whatever it was. But um, when we initially contacted, it was actually gone. It was it was uh, under contract. And, but, you know, the, the broker sent me the same anyway. I looked at it and I was like, actually, I really like this. It's very small, but it gives us the chance to live near my wife's family. So we're willing to we're willing to deal with the, the smallness. Um, and a couple of weeks later, the broker sends out a, an email blast. Hey, everyone on this email previously expressed interest in this business. Um, give me a call back. And I, I probably called back within 10 minutes. And within a day or two, had the owner conversation with the sellers and my wife. And <clears throat> the next day submitted an IOI and went under contract right away. We skipped the LOI, went straight to the asset purchase agreement, which maybe is, I don't know. I don't have an opinion on whether that's right or wrong, but to each his own, that's what the broker wanted. And within a couple of weeks, we, were, we had a signed asset purchase agreement.
0: That's amazing. I, I got to go back to the conversation. You met your wife. She sounds like a go-getter. I mean, she's like pushing you a little bit farther than you think you can go sometimes.
1: Um. I mean, I wanted the, I wanted the safety net of the funded search. Yeah. You know, I was, you know, concerned about healthcare for the kids and that kind of stuff. And legitimate care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were on Medicaid or yeah, Medicare, no Medicaid. Yeah. Medicaid's the one for poor people. That's where we were Um, for that year. Like I, I called up the county and was like, my income is zero. My assets weren't zero. So we didn't get food stamps or anything like that, but they put the kids on, on state Medicaid, so we could take them to the hospital if we needed to. And, and she was like, my wife um, was like, well, let's just give it a try. Let's give it two weeks. Um, I guess maybe she just felt, uh, you know, prompting or a pull to give it a shot. And she was obviously right, because, you know, less than nine months later, here we are.
0: Yeah. So this business, you Skip the LOI, went all the way to the asset purchase agreement. Did anything turn out different than what you saw in the reps and warranties or anything else in the business?
1: Not really. I personally would have preferred to have an LOI. I think that's a valid step. But the broker had, had his own preconceived notions and had convinced the sellers that that was the right way to do things.
0: Yeah, that sounds kind of odd. I mean, that's, you know, it's a conceptual agreement to say, hey, you know, we're going to be ethical
1: towards each other. Uh, It's a non-binding. It's just like, can we work together? Yeah, and and I like it as a, one of the issues I had with the asset purchase agreement was getting the non-binding part from, and they wanted $10,000 in earnest money too. Um, The broker obviously came from a real estate background. That's kind of the way that, real estate functions is you, you don't have a, an LOI is what you do is you negotiate an LOI and it sets the structure for the asset purchase agreement or, well, that's the thing. You don't even know if you want an asset purchase agreement or a stock purchase agreement yet, right? You haven't opened up the hoods of the financial and that kind of stuff. An LOI usually gets you exclusivity so that, um, you, you're, you know that you're not going to get undercut by somebody else while you're, while you're doing the super basic stuff. Um, But it basically says like, Hey, these are the general terms that we want in an asset purchase agreement. This is the price. This is the multiple. This is how much time you'll work after we close that kind of stuff. Um, Are we all
0: in agreement?
1: Yes or no. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, is this about right? And, and you know, that can take a couple of weeks to negotiate. Um, and, and the thing is, is that we basically just skipped that, went straight to the asset purchase agreement. Um, but I had, to, I had to get the clauses, the protections for me that are baked into a, an LOI because it's non-binding and get those put into the asset purchase agreement. But in an LOI, you have you know, 30, 60, 90 days to do your diligence and you haven't given them any money. And so if you decide not to buy it for any reason or no reason, that's just the end of it. Um, With the asset purchase agreement, I had to give them $10,000. And so I had to say, look, you have to give me at least 20 days, right? And I can kill the deal for any reason or no reason. I had to get my lawyer because I I had a good draft of an LOI, but I had to get my lawyer in on this one. Like, how can I protect myself? Because I'm going to give them ten thousand dollars, and I have to make sure that they're going to give it back to me if I don't like this. Because the vast majority of the businesses that I look at, the financials, you don't like.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Why was the guy selling? Um, they, is husband and wife, um, both of them had were working in the business for thirty years, and they decided uh, that it was time to retire. And was there any? Did how
0: did you connect? I mean, was this a emotional rapport connection with them like, hey, we like this guy the best because he's got four kids, he's in the Air Force and something or was it just financially? They didn't care who was sitting
1: on the other side? Uh, they very much cared about who was on the other side. I think I also had the highest offer. I offered 25,000 over asking. yeah, which in you know realistically is a very small percent over but I wanted to get it off the market right away. And so I said, look, I will give you everything you're asking for plus 25,000, but they didn't want a seller note. And I said, I'm not gonna do a deal without a seller note. So that's one of the reasons I'll give you, I'll give you a higher purchase price in exchange for a seller note. And what that effectively meant is they're gonna get pretty close to the same cash out at close that they would have gotten with no seller note, but the lower purchase price. But it still means that I owe them money, um, which which means that they still retain an incentive for me not to go bankrupt. Do right they, yeah, uh
0: curious. How long was the seller now? Two to three years or?
1: Uh, no, I I negotiated that it would be fully subordinated to the 10 year SBA term. Oh, wow. Wow. Do they now, the real the reality of that isn't. I'm not going to wait 10 years to pay them back because what'll happen is uh, in, most, in most cases, or I guess the average SBA uh, loan is, they're all for 10 years, but the average one gets paid back before seven years, five to seven years. And so um, I will either have it paid off or refinanced by about the fifth year, which means that you know, in reality, their 5% um, is only on, on the hook for five years.
0: Yeah, do they have any covenants or conditions about being able to see the
1: books to make sure you're paying, or is it just sending them a paycheck? Um,
0: they, or uh, a loan repayment debt.
1: <clears throat> yep, exactly. So they did ask for quarterly financials, which is one of the reasons that I specifically am going to try and get it repaid as quick as possible because I'd like to grow the company. And you know, two three years from now, I don't think it's their business how much money I'm making anymore.
0: Right, right. They don't need to know that. Exactly. Yeah. So how is it going so far? I mean, uh, consistently cash flow, met your debt obligations, uh, paying back. How are you planning on growing it? What can can you see there?
1: So um, the cash flow is not as consistent as I was hoping. Yeah. Uh, But that was because of a couple of management missteps by me in the month of July. Um, and we've, we've got those hopefully fixed and we're back on track. Um, but yeah, well,
0: what do you, you don't have to be specific about yeah. those errors because we all make mistakes. What, what kind yeah, of, what,
1: what kind of, what, what error do you think you mean? Unforced error? Um, no, I think it might've been something that we had to do, but effectively the the mom was the garden manager and she had a supervisor that worked under her. And the pop uh, was the landscape manager, and he had a supervisor that worked under him. Okay, on day one, we fired the landscape supervisor uh, because he stole a truck and drove it halfway across the state. <laughs>
0: That's it's part of part funny, but it's
1: part. Yep, being a small business. Yeah. So then we took one of our foremen and we promoted him to supervisor. He did great. Um, after did the, the trade, truck, did you get the truck back? Yeah, we got, yeah. we got the truck back. He, he took, pulled out the tracker and smashed it on the ground in the parking lot before he left, um, but whatever. So he got fired and, and took no accountability. But so one of the foremen stepped up to the supervisor role and was not all the way trained as supervisor before the end of the 30-day period um, where mom and pop were still working for the business. I mean, the first two weeks were a whirlwind. I have no idea what happened. I got a
0: question for you about that yeah. because you're still paying the, uh, sell, you have a seller note and he's still kind of out there like available for advice. This happens. Was he any help or was he just totally out of it? Well, it
1: wasn't. Int- I don't think he would have recognized that it was an error because I told him what I was doing. So I'll, I'll, I'll get to the error itself here. Um at the end of the 30 days, I needed to have, so I guess the, the two sellers were each, um, were each doing two full-time jobs. So the mom was, she ran all the finances of the company and she was in charge of all the gardening and the gardening sales. The pop was in charge of, all of landscaping, um, a lot of the HR and marketing and landscape sales. So between the two of them, they were doing three and a half to four people's worth of work. Never took a vacation in 20 years during the summertime, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just, that's, that's too much for me. And they were doing that with the experience. So what I did was I took that landscape supervisor who was brand new and I elevated him to a landscape manager position
0: yeah.
1: and had him start training a supervisor below him. And in hindsight, that was too much for him to handle um, because a lot of balls got dropped um, and a lot of balls that cost us a lot of money
0: yeah.
1: got dropped. And and so by the end of July, when I realized that the cash flow had gone from 120000 in the month of June to zero, uh, we we had to fix some stuff. So my salesperson had previously been the landscape supervisor, had been elevated to sales. So I took him, put him back in charge of landscaping, so he's the landscape manager, took the guy um, who is still on track for his promotion to landscape manager, made him back a supervisor, and kind of retrenched in let's make sure that we get this right and have the person who is more qualified to define the ambiguous, what a landscape manager does, have him do it. And then the guy below him can come up um, once it's been defined. So that I think will help uh, quite a bit. Things have already gotten better in the last two or three weeks um, moving in this direction. so we will, we're definitely going to be fine going forward, you know, but that kind of misstep early on can certainly cost you.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Was uh, your wife or the, were you panicked about it? You're like, Oh crap. Does not not turn out
1: expect to be, I mean, a couple of nights of very little sleep. Um, but, you know, at the same time, that's kind of, I, at first I was like super stressed and I was like, how can this be more stressful than flying a giant cargo plane into Afghanistan with people shooting at you? Yeah. And then I realized it's not, I'm letting it stress me out more. Worst. I was like, look, worst case scenario, I go bankrupt. Everybody's Mm -hmm. healthy. Everybody's happy. Everyone that works for me, will go find another job. Nobody died. Nobody will die.
0: Oh, Uh, you know, who also told me that's like it. uh, he said, "You know, I never done entrepreneur stuff before." This Navy Seal's like, "Oh my God, I've been in I've been in the uh, Iraq three times, man." There's not losing a business and going close and going bankrupt, not half as scary as being in
1: Iraq. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, and the thing was, is I let it, I let it freak me out. And as soon as I made the decision that it wasn't stressful, this is not like once I decided, no, this isn't a stressful situation. Like the worst that can happen here is not that bad for anyone involved. It's, it can be bad, but it's not life or limb. It's not health and those kinds of things. And so once I stopped letting the stress run me, which it did for a couple of days, um, I was able to say, you know what? I have the right person for this job. He's already on staff. I'll just have him take over the landscaping. Um, have him teach the supervisor um, how to do these things. Because when he was in charge, he was running it just fine. It was a profitable division of the company. Um, And so I just put him back in charge and have been mentoring um, my two new managers um, and the supervisors that are coming up behind them. Um, And so you asked earlier about what the plan for growth for the company is, the plan... Um, is to, I've realized that this is the right size for this business. The the square footage, the number of trucks, the number of managers that we have. I I feel confident that this is the right size. We can fill it out a little bit. Uh, But the plan is to get a good structure in place where we have a general manager, two division managers, and two supervisors under each of those division managers um, with a bookkeeper and a salesperson. And then that will be the template that gets replicated. So once we get enough customers, um, in this case, we're aiming for the north end of town. That's where we have a nice little concentration of customers. The plan is to try and build that neighborhood out um, to the point where it can support another location. Then what we'll do is make like a bacteria and split in two, um, take half of our employees and trucks and move them up there to a new location and then and then backfill, then train the next generation b- below them until we have two fully operating locations. And maybe by that time, you know, and then after that, those two locations hopefully grow. And then we, we split one or both of them again. And, and that's the way that we'll grow.
0: And I, I suspect you've run some modeling numbers on when that split and your bacteria will be.
1: I haven't yet. Uh, But again, you know, we're not even three months into owning the company. Yeah. Uh, So we're still getting a handle on day to day operations and making sure that we're profitable each day. Um, But I, I feel confident. Well, I know for sure that it won't be next season that we're able to do this, but I feel confident that the, the following spring, so that'll be spring of 2023, that will be to the point where we're considering, you know, where and if to to go ahead and open a new location.
0: Yeah. How, how's your wife feel? Does she feel comfortable, confident, or is it, uh, you know, the life of an entrepreneur watching the bank account go up and down sometimes is, it can be kind of a, you know, nice yeah. little emotional roller coaster.
1: Yeah. So she, she solves part of that by not watching it. <laughs> I, had, I had an
0: entrepreneur friend of mine. He's on two businesses, twenty million. He goes, you know, my therapist told me to take my wife off my business account.
1: Yeah, I mean, she knows. Like, she could log she could log in with my credentials whenever she wants, but um, she doesn't. We she she works in the business uh, part time. Uh, she's getting an MBA. Um, herself. Um, and, you know, she, she's got a lot of valid input, but she tries to stay off the highs and lows by staying out of the bank account. Because like you said, it varies wildly, very, very wildly. Yeah. yeah. And, and you have to just, you have to be okay with that.
0: I'm just curious how you Centered yourself back, you know. When it's a stressful, hey, I made a mistake. How do I correct the error? And it looks like it, instead of like the world's falling apart, to like, oh my god, this is not as bad as I thought. I mean, how did you recenter yourself? Uh, like, what what was your inspiration? To
1: like to get your head out of that fear, worry, and doubt stage. Well, I mean, I walk in my office every day, and I've got all my leftover military paraphernalia, um, you know, my academy plaque, you know, I've got a, I don't know if you ever saw the, the movie Tuskegee Airmen, but I have a signed litho from one of the Tuskegee Airmen on the wall. And, you know, it's literally one plane shooting down another, like life and death, you know, and, you know, you just realize you're like, wait a minute, like, I've had people shoot missiles at my airplane in Afghanistan, like that's scary. And I wasn't scared then. And so I, I'm like, I tell myself, look, I, how can I be more stressed now than I ever was in the Air Force, you know? And then I'm like, wait, I shouldn't be. (laughs) This is life and death. I'm not killing anybody. Nobody's killing me. We're not crashing any airplanes in the mountains. No bombs dropping. Like. And, and as soon as I, I, literally the second I was like, wait, this isn't life and death. And I said to myself, well, what's the worst case? And I described it. I described it all the way out. Like what happens? Like, okay, my bookkeeper goes and gets another job. Um, the bank takes the keys to the building. They get all the pickup trucks and have to deal with disposing of those. They're like 1994 pickup trucks, some of them. And all of my employees are great. They'll all go get other jobs. Like I will give them all great recommendations. I will go get a job at a fortune 500 company and I'll never be a multimillionaire, but yeah. we'll be fine. and once I described out what would happen in a worst case scenario, I was like, that is not so bad. Why am I scared of that?
0: Yeah. And it's like, that's a great tool uh, to shrink that time. The next time it will come again, but to shrink that time, you're in that stage. Just like, yep. yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Well, do you have any plans to acquire other businesses to add on to it? you know?
1: Um, I don't know yet. I I know myself, so I suspect that this will not be the first time I purchase a business. Um, well, I'm certain that this will not be the first time I purchase a business, um, or rather the last. This won't be the last time I purchase a business, but whether that is we start to grow, And then we grow through acquisition to a certain point or whether that is, I get this business operating well, two, three locations, um, hire an MBA from a local good, but not, you know, top seven MBA school um, to be CEO and start building out the management. And then that frees up my time. I get bored and I go buy another business. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm relatively certain. That if this venture is successful, I will be buying other businesses in the future. Yeah, I want to
0: wish you the best of luck, and uh, we're almost out of the time. So, uh, Mike, thank you so much for your time, especially thanks for your service, and uh, I want to wish you the best in your business.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, John, and uh, anybody who hears this and is interested, you know, you can probably find me on Search Funder. I like to comment on stuff um, or on LinkedIn, and you know. I, I love chatting with people and helping them out. Oh, by the way, and uh,
0: Mike has, uh, you'll have to ask him. I'm not going to afford it, but he has some great uh, financial spreadsheet models that you can run for your business through. So, But you need to reach out to Mike on Wonder uh, or LinkedIn. So have thank you, Mike. Time. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks for having hey, me. You too. Cheers. Bye. Bye.